wherever you may be around the world, and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth number two, letteru.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Shalom, Jano. And it is, as always, awesome being here with you. It's grand to have you back on the program, my friend, as we are continuing in our series exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, and asking the question, who composed the psalm? You know, what is it about? What was happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? Uh, How does it apply to us today? Also, what would Christianity have us believe about each psalm, and how does that deviate from the original uh, intent? That is... Uh, that is a, a component of our discussion that will be uh, very much highlighted in this particular chapter. The chapter that we're doing this week uh, is, of course, Psalm chapter 14. I'm going to read it from the New King James Study Bible. It goes like this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're all corrupt. They've all done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand seek God, they have all turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on, on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge." Oh, the salvation of Israel, the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Michael. Okay. Um, You know, for those who've been following along, um, this psalm has a a certain amount in common with the previous five psalms. Um, When you look at some of the language and some of the ideas Um, For example, you see in Psalms 9 and 10, uh, the wicked declaring that there is no God. Mm -hmm. Um, And really what you see in all of these Psalms is really a a complaint. Really, it's uh, (laughs) David is, uh, you know, bothered. He's perplexed. He's certainly uh, wondering about the success of the wicked. Why are there, why are these people running rampant throughout the world? Mm. Why do they blaspheme against God? Why do they persecute God's people, the innocent? Um, and they seem to get away with it. And yet, each of the Psalms we saw, uh, you know, ends, you know, essentially with, um, you know, the statement or the prayer that these people will not succeed ultimately. Uh, they will get it in the end. Um, but this seems to be, you know, uh, part of this unit of six Psalms, um, which all have this. Um, similar theme Mm -hmm. and um, this psalm actually you know if if we get there one day God willing soon is almost verbatim the same as Psalm 53 Mm. Um, Psalm 53 is a bit longer but it you know they basically are almost uh, word for word the same and the Jewish commentaries at least some of the medieval Jewish commentaries um and, and it's really hard to see this in the text, I'll grant you that. But Rashi, for example, and Radak, um, they try to place Psalm 14 really as prophetic. Um, so rather than having, um, as we saw in previous Psalms, David writing about 
um, the, the evil that he has seen in his lifetime and the, and the persecution he's seen in his lifetime, a lot of the commentaries see this psalm really as forecasting prophetically um, what's going to be taking place with the destruction of the first temple mm-hmm. by Nebuchadnezzar. And, um, 53 and they in see, regards to the dest- uh, destruction of the second temple. That's what some of them do, yes. Mm. I mean, again, it's very, very hard to actually um, see this clearly in the text. Although, um, I think when you get to the very end of this psalm, if we just jump over there for a minute, mm. in verse 7. So, in verse 7 it says, when the Lord brings back the return of his people... And that is is very, very similar in language to what you see in Psalm 126, mm-hmm. um, which is very clearly a psalm that's speaking about the, the um, first exile of Israel to Babylon. And there, the language is just very, very similar, if not almost the same as here, where it says in verse 1 um, that... Uh, the the eternal, the Lord will bring back the captivity of Zion. And then in verse 4 in that psalm, it speaks as a prayer, bring back, O eternal, our captives. Mm. Um, so, that's one of the reasons. I mean, if you dissect the language of these psalms, you know, there may be some other clues as to why these commentaries try to associate Psalm 14 um, with the destruction of the first temple. Not everyone takes Psalm 53 as the destruction of the second temple. Some people actually take both of them because the language is so similar, they say both of them are referring to the destruction of the first temple. Mm. Um, But it seems as if at least verse 7 has this very clear language which parallels Psalm 126 and, uh, you know, the prayer for the return of those exiled Jews from Babylon. Um, so, that might be one of the, the clues. Um, but other commentaries really see this as either specifically referring to um, things that David experienced in his lifetime, um, or some commentaries see it as um, David speaking in general, not necessarily about his lifetime, but in general, um, you know, reflecting on uh, evil people and w- what they attempt to do. Some people actually, and this is a very, very uh, small number of commentaries, um, suggest that it may even be a reflection on not the wicked nations of the world persecuting Israel, but the wicked in Israel, the wicked people in Israel who persecute the poor and the helpless uh, fellow Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there may be a number of ways in which this psalm can be seen. You know, obviously they all have, you know, common uh, theme of reflecting on wicked people, whoever they may be, and trying to penetrate uh, who they are and what motivates them. One thing that uh, does set it apart, though, e- even though it has all of these uh, um, uh, aspects in, in, in common with the with the chapter, the previous chapters that you've uh, made mention of, uh, in the previous chapters there is a uh, a complaint directly to God. He's speaking to God and he's offering a complaint. Uh, but in this particular chapter, God seems to be in the third person throughout. Yes, this is, that, that is certainly uh, one unique aspect of this psalm. And, you know, you could speculate as to why that might be. You know, in all the previous psalms, 
you know, David addresses God directly. Hmm. And, you know, why is it that here um, that doesn't happen? Um, you know, if you want to get cynical about it, you can say that he's fed up by now. Um, and uh, although he you know, never has God out of his mind, you know, maybe here he's more internally thinking uh, what he would say to God. Hmm. Um, although I think the more reasonable way of reading it, you know, the, the non-cynical way would be that, you know, all of these, because th- these are prayers, you know, all of the Psalms are prayers, um, and uh, that's why they're in the Bible. They weren't put into the Bible <laughs> for cynical reasons. Mm. So, I think that even though maybe overtly it, there's no direct addressing of God, you know, it's pretty clear that that's who David is thinking about. You know, David was the kind of person that was, you know, uh, just attached to God constantly in his consciousness. Um, so, I think that my feeling is that that can be assumed, even though it's not spelled out. Um, but it's a good observation because, it, you know, it, 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 at least textually, it's, it's different. It's different in the previous songs. Hmm. Yeah. Now, one of the things I wanted to just mention, because um, I don't think we've come up with this word before, but um, I think your, your translation of verse uh, of the first passage um, was that it's the fool that says in his heart. The fool. Uh, now, I'm, I'm glad you asked because uh, in the New King James, yeah, that I just read, it is the fool. In my Jewish study Bible, it uses a, uh, a word that uh, I, I really like this word, the benighted man. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't seen that translation before. <laughs> the benighted um, man. So, I, I, I had to look it up just to be accurate. Uh, in a state of pitiful or contemptible intellectual or moral ignorance. Wow. Hmm. It, it's interesting because benighted, I mean, it's from the from the same root as the word night. Yeah. Well, no. Well, wow. no, as, as in, yeah, N-I-G-H-T. So, benighted. Oh, well, not a knight as a knight in shining armor. but no. a, a, Someone is living in the dark, basically. Yeah, overtaken by darkness. That was the, uh, yes. the second yeah, yeah, description so of that's the That's interesting. Yeah. Um, the Hebrew here is, is it's fascinating because you have a number of uh, parallels in, in the Bible, which some of the commentaries point out. Um, I'll just I'll share maybe a, a two or three of them. One is, um, I mean, where would you get the idea of naval? being a fool the first thing so that is the word naval is the is the hebrew and the the first thing that popped into my head and i didn't have time to look this up so maybe you can correct me if i'm wrong but it reminded me of uh one of david's wives abigail who yes. was previously uh, married what was the name of her first husband naval that that was it okay and and, and, she, and if yeah. i remember correctly she said for so his name uh, he's a fool for so his name means or something like that yeah, I mean, it's not really, it's interesting, it's not so much a fool there. Um, you know, it's interesting because in Hebrew, uh, something that's disgusting and degraded um, would be called nevala. And that's what, what she says. She says that he's, he's appropriately named naval because he's, you know, it's, his name is similar to his state of being, which is nevala, which is degraded. Right. Um, it's similar to the Hebrew word nevela, which is an animal that you know it becomes inedible um, because it died without proper ritual slaughter. Um, so it's almost like a, a disgusting kind of animal in the sense that it's 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 we not can't eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
Oh, that's in First Samuel twenty five twenty five, um, which is makes reference to, and it's not. It's a proper noun there. It's someone's name, but again, it's a name that is connected to this word of nivala, which is not a fool so much because it's really it, she's. You know, she speaks of him as just a degraded person, as a lowlife. Mm. Um, so, it's not the best source. Although, it's interesting what you may be able to say, because earlier on in that chapter, it's, it contrasts her, Avigail, to her husband. Mm. And she's described, actually, as a wise woman. Yeah. Um, so, maybe he, when you contrast him to her, he's, he's the fool. Um Another place, which is potentially the source, is if you go to Deuteronomy 32.6, where um, God speaks about Israel in non-flattering terms. He speaks about them as an am noval velo chacham, a, people of- a nation that is naval and not wise. Mm. So, if you want to say that it's a parallel uh, phrases, that it's just repeating the same idea… So, uh, the, when it says velo chacham and not wise, um, that's telling you what naval means, not wise. And that's how the Targum, the, the Aramaic translation, understands the word and how the Septuagint uh, understands the word. Um, certainly, you could argue and say, well, why would it repeat the same concept twice? Um, so, it's not a slam dunk in terms of what it means in, in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, a really fascinating uh, derivation or, or explanation of what the word means, naval, is going back to Exodus chapter 18, verse 18, where um, Yisro, Jethro, yep. is is really, really concerned for Moses because he's taking upon himself you know, the task of judging all the people all day and all night. And so, Yisro says to him, you're going to get withered. And that's the word there is noval, noval tivol, um, same exact word. Hmm. So, Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Hirsch says that, you know, he translates this word here in, in Psalm 14, noval, as the withered person, meaning he's withered morally, he's worn out. Um, you know, he speaks about this naval, he says, like a withered leaf that has no life, and the the moral strength of the, this naval has disappeared because he's constantly succumbed to his lusts and therefore his ability to control his urges has withered. He's he's has no more moral strength, and uh, you know what, what happens to such a person is that their spiritual divine spark. And free will basically gets overtaken by constantly giving into their urges and to their physical appetite. And so, what happens is they, they end up as someone who denies God um, because they live with this certain cognitive dissonance because they are living a life of zero moral restraint. Um, and yet, the cognition that there's a God that runs the world uh, makes that very difficult. So, in order to keep on living that kind of morally degraded life, it sort of forces them to deny the existence of God. Um, and so, that's why it says the naval is someone that says in their heart, there's no God. If I recall correctly, when we spoke about this uh, in chapter 10, verse 4, where it says there is no God, and we did uh, toy with the idea of, it, is this a representation of atheism? 
Or is this a representation of God does not see, does not hear? He's nothing to do with with my own uh, behavior and and conduct. I can I can do as I as I please because I'm not accountable. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting. You know, this idea of atheism to some extent is a modern concept. Mm. Mm. You know, I don't think that in, in you know for, in the ancient world it, it probably was not even a category people thought in. in in terms like that, that there, people probably had some kind of connection to, you know, a, a creator god or, you know, uh, you know, at a least some power, a greater, a even the pagans. Yeah, of course. Yeah, even the pagans. So, you know, this is probably not atheism, I would imagine, although, you know, I'm sure that if someone wanted to force that in, they could. Um, but probably someone who, you know, their conception of God um, you know, again, in the previous chapters, they were saying God doesn't see, God doesn't, you know, God's out, God mm. is, you know, so, but here, when the person says there is no God, so I don't know if it's an expression of atheism so much as an expression of, you know, there's no God that I have to worry about. You yeah, know, uh, yeah, my conduct <laughs> is not, uh, I'm not accountable uh, to anyone, yes. it, it's, it's got nothing to do with me, um, I can act as I, as I, as I please. Exactly. Hmm. Um, they are corrupt. Now, corrupt, uh, what is the word in Hebrew? He, well, he shechitu, um, they, they've acted corruptly. Now, that, um, that is a word that represents uh, the idea of, of I, I, I read another translation that says foul, as if the idea of food having gone off. Is that fair? Mm, um, that's interesting, because that was the really the meaning of this word nevela. You know that the so hashchit um, really means to destroy. Um, uh, it's really someone who acts corruptly by destroying the sort of moral, uh, you know, standards. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I vaguely remember. It's possible this word came up in the um, in the early chapters of, of Genesis of Bereshit. Although I don't have a concordance in front of me, um, I think God said there He shchitu. Um, um, be chapter six. All flesh, all flesh have destroyed their ways upon the earth. I seem to vaguely remember the word came up with God's moral judgment over mankind at some point earlier in Genesis, um, and I think it was the the flood story. Mm, yeah. Oh, so I found it here. If just it's in um, chapter. Um, 6 verse 12 12 okay comes up twice actually that that exact word um it was corrupt the earth it says god saw the earth it was corrupt because all flesh had corrupted its way on the ah, earth so it is yeah yeah um and that's after it and, says that the earth was filled with hamas the earth was filled with violence yeah hmm I mean, it was they're they're pretty bad guys back then. It was, <laughs> it was no fun. Bad hombres. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, the Naval has said in his heart. So the fool has said in his heart, "There is no God." They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. Abominable is another strong word. Very strong word, right? Yeah. <laughs> the language here is pretty tough. Mm. Um, I mean, I think that it's expressing the idea. You know, it's interesting that um, you know, in the story of Abraham, um, he. He tells Avimelech that Sarah is his sister, mm-hmm. 
And Avi Miller says, oh, so she's uh, not she's attached to you. Yeah. <laughs> he grabs her. Yeah. And then it turns out that Avi Melech is told, you know, you, you, you grabbed some married mm. married woman. And he comes to Abraham and he's he's furious. And he says, why did you mislead me? Mm. You know, he, you know, he's sort of, he's, um, you know, he's, he's insulted. You know, well, he's treating me like some barbarian. He, he recognizes that, uh, that as a result, he was in danger. Why would you do that? Well, to that's me? true, yeah. but it's that he's expressing sort of a moral outrage. Like, why would you, you know, treat me like a barbarian that you had to lie to me? Mm. And Abraham says it's because you don't have the fear of God that you would kill me mm. uh, because of my wife. And so, you know, there is this idea that once we do away with the, you know, absolute morality that is, you know, basically only available if we have. Uh, a God that defines morality, then anything goes. Hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a wonderful quote from um, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a, a very f- amazing philosopher, but he was an atheist. And he once reflected uh, about, you know, moral standards and ethical standards. And he, he basically was saying that uh, as an atheist – He's very uncomfortable. He said, uh, at one point he said, I refuse to believe that the only thing wrong with wanton cruelty is that I don't like it. Hmm. Now, what he was basically acknowledging was that as an atheist, how can he argue against something like murder or rape? Hmm. Um, All he can say at the end of the day is that, um, you know, the government has outlawed these things. And I think he recognized that the weakness with that is that the government can very easily change. I mean, mm. we've had governments that permitted, you know, violence done against certain people. And so, he, I think he realized that, you know, a human court that, you know, declares what's right and what's wrong is not the best barometer of right and mm. wrong. And so, he, he realized that all he was left with was his own inner sense of moral right and wrong. And yet, what he said was, I refuse to believe, meaning I, I, it's impossible for me to believe that the only thing wrong with being cruel is that I don't like it. Meaning mm. what he was recognizing was that there must be something intrinsically wrong with it, cosmically wrong with it. And the truth is that as believers, we know that the same God who said, uh, let there be light, was the same God who said, thou shalt not kill. Meaning that the source of morality is is built into reality it's not extrinsic to reality mm. it's 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 built into the fabric of the universe because we have uh you know a, a grasp of the idea that there's a god who both created the world and who established moral law mm. but uh, uh, for an atheist there is no such thing and you know what you see here in the psalm is that once you do away with the belief in god there's nothing to stop you from being corrupt and, uh, you know, practicing the worst kind of immorality. Now, having said that, we do know, of course, I mean, we all know, uh, well, maybe we don't all know, but many of us know atheists who are very good people. Uh, despite you know, their beliefs. Despite their beliefs. beliefs. Uh, I mean, that, that's the point. The point is that they're, they're good people, not because of their belief system. It's despite their belief system. Mm-hmm. That's the important caveat. That is. But this is where it gets a little chewy. In the next uh, 
sentence that says, there is none who does good. Now, when it says that, it is referring back to the Naval. It's referring, all of this is referring, it's describing the fool uh, who has said in his heart, there is no God. Um, and But when we get to verse 2, uh, it says the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men, and that seems categorical. Um, perhaps we're not talking just about the fool now. Now we're, we're, the Lord is looking down on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. Now when we get to, uh, with the clarification of verse 2, when we get to the first sentence of verse 3, are we still talking about the fool or are we talking about men in general, mankind? Well, this really, <laughs> this is a great segue to, you know, um, Paul's mm-hmm. uh, co-opting of this chapter. Because what Paul does is Paul um, essentially takes this chapter not as um, simply dealing with the fool or the atheist or the you know um, the denier of God, but Paul takes it as universal, as a uh, as really a judgment on mankind in general, mm. and and I, and I think that there is. A strong. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think that it, that at first blush, when you read this psalm, um, verses again in a, in the way it's broken up in a Jewish uh, Bible, mm. verses two and three um, do seem to be more general. That God looks down from heaven upon um, to children of men, bnei adam, the children of men, um, and then in verse three. Um, they all have gone astray. Hmm. There's no one who does good, not even one. So um, it seems that those two verses um, go beyond the fool and are a, a condemnation of all mankind. There's no one who does good. Um, I think that's a misreading of the psalm. Um, and I'll, I'll, I, I think that there are a few clues. Um, first of all, it... it Verse 1 um, and verse 4 bracket verses 2 and 3. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 1, we're told that it's the fool that denies God that behaves so wickedly. Mm. And then in verse 4, it goes back, right, to not all human beings, but the workers of iniquity, mm-hmm. right? So it seems to me that what you have in, in Psalm 14 here is really a psalm that is not speaking about every single human being as being morally corrupt, but that verse 1 sets the stage and tells you that it's speaking about the fool that denies God. And um, verse 4 clarifies that it's the psalm is speaking not about all human beings, but about those who are workers of iniquity, meaning okay. those people who are sinners. And therefore, that would sort of force you to understand verses 2 and 3, where when God looks down upon these people, the people he's looking down at in verse 2 are the deniers of God that you just that the psalm mm-hmm. begins with in verse 1. These particular and, children of men uh, that, are, yes. that are qualified uh, at the beginning of the psalm. And, and surely it has to be that way, Michael, because… 
uh, hypothetically, if God looks down upon the uh, children of men in general, if he looks down upon mankind to see if there are any who understand who seek God, but they have all turned aside, well, then how do we reconcile that with, with verse 5 that says that God is with the generation of the righteous, if there are no yeah. righteous? Right. I mean, and who is the who is the psalmist here? Meaning, is the is is the person that's writing this psalm, you know, equally wicked and horrible? Hmm. That you know, David seems to be here someone who is not one of these wicked fools that deny God and act wickedly. Um, so, you know, the psalmist himself does not seem to be part of this group. Um, and obviously, in verse five, the the righteous generation. You know, they're not wicked and horrible, disgusting people. So I think there's plenty of just in internal evidence in Psalm 14, which sort of forces us to say that verses two and three are not general observations about every human being on the planet, but you have to sort of squeeze those two verses back into. Uh, the context that the psalm begins with, mm-hmm. um, which is that it's speaking about the wicked people who deny God and therefore act wickedly um, because there's no moral constraint over them. And again, another proof, by the way, is that um, you have the phrase, um, there is none that does good, no, not one, um, based, repeated in verse 1 and in verse 3. So, verse 3, which you could think, right, because it begins by saying they're all gone astray. Who, who is they? Who are they talking about? Mm. And it says there's no one that does good, not one. Well, that back in verse 1, that same phrase was referring to the fool who denies God. Yeah. Um, so, I think you have enough evidence just within the psalm that would force you to say, no, this is not – a um, you know uh, a psalm that is focusing on the existential state of mankind, and that takes us to one more point, mm-hmm. which is that um, you know what is the context of the psalm in general? Meaning that um, you know Paul, who uses this psalm as part of his proof about the um, you know the damned and condemned state, the moral state of human beings in general. So, it would seem that his view is that the, the theme of this psalm is that it's a psalm whose, whose basic theme and context is uh, a pronouncement on the moral state of mankind. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, it doesn't seem to be that way because, you know, when you go through it, it's very clear that it's speaking um, to a great extent about the suffering of God's people, mm. um, a concern about um, you know, specifically um, the persecution of God's people and how these wicked people, um, you know, they, the, the expression they use is they consume them, they eat them um, like a person eats bread. Um, so, so there, it, it seems as if the, the concern in this psalm, um, you know, is not a reflection on the moral state of of all being human beings as being corrupt, but on the persecution of some human beings by others. Hmm. And and at the end of the psalm, I mean, the, the end of the psalm really sort of gives you the, the, the summation of the whole psalm, which is the redemption of these people that hmm. have been suffering. Hmm. So, it's very hard for me to, to look at this psalm and say in its totality what it's concerned about telling us 
is that all human beings are equally corrupt and equal and morally bankrupt. Mm. Um, and then you have, you know, all the internal evidence that I try to suggest point out that, um, you know, this psalm is not, uh, you know, sort of reflecting on the existential state of mankind in general. Um, but then, you know, there's an old saying that you got to take scripture in the context of scripture. And the question would be, you know, how does that assessment stack up against what the rest of the Torah says, what the rest of the Bible says? Meaning that, do you find this idea in the scriptures in general that mankind as a, you know, total, you know, entity of human beings, mm -hmm. everyone from top to bottom, they're all essentially wicked by nature. Um, that is it, a, is it a pronouncement against all human beings? It's, it's obviously impossible, meaning that once you take this psalm in the context of the rest of the scriptures, you know, one of the most obvious, you know, it repeats hundreds and hundreds of times is that the scriptures constantly um, reference righteous people, specifically contrasting them to the wicked. Mm. So, if everyone was wicked, you wouldn't have the Bible contrasting the righteous to the wicked. I mean, it literally comes up, especially, by the way, you know, the two places in the Bible it comes up most frequently is in Psalms and Proverbs. I mean, you have it hundreds and hundreds of times, and it certainly takes place in the rest of the Bible. Hmm. And just and in then the, you opening, have, uh, the opening 13 chapters that we've done thus far, uh, it's a consistent theme, let alone the remainder of the of the Tanakh. It, it surely is. You mean the contrasting of the wicked to the yeah. righteous? Yeah. Yes, for sure. But, you know, it's interesting that the, the first 14 chapters here don't necessarily uh, describe the victims of the wicked people as righteous. Mm. Um, here it does in verse five. Here it does mention uh, specifically, you know, people that are righteous outside yep. the camp of these wicked people. But you know, you have literally hundreds of passages um, where it specifically contrasts um, righteous people with wicked people. Um, Psalm ninety-seven, for example: "You that love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints." He delivers them out of the hands of the wicked. Mm -hmm. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Who is that speaking about? I mean, it's clearly speaking about people that are righteous. Mm -hmm. um, Proverbs 11. The integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors will destroy them. Riches profit not in the day of wrath. But righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the perfect ones shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright shall deliver them, but transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. I mean, it, again, it repeats so many times, um, you know, the fact that you have scripture naming by name righteous people numerous times. Um, so, I don't know if you want to, you know, swing over to what, what Paul says now in Romans. Well, before um, we do, I, I, I was going to just state that uh, the fact that even uh, the New Testament is against Paul uh, when it comes to this particular statement. And I was just going to, uh, to mention, of course, you know, we have in, in uh, Job, uh, in the beginning of Job, God describes Job 
uh, as uh, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Uh, we have a very, very similar description of the uh, of the writer of Luke would have us believe of John the Baptist's uh, parents. And I'm just just looking for it. It would be, here we go. So uh, her name was Elizabeth. Okay. And they were both uh, righteous before God, walking in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Very similar to the language in, in Eov, that's correct. Mm. doesn't work so much for Paul. Um, so the, the context certainly um, uh, supports uh, the fact that it's talking about the fool. But when it comes to, and I think this goes to the point, I, I think this works against Paul. When we go to Romans 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 and on, uh, as he lays out his evidence and the way that it is presented, when one studies out where these quotes come from, because he begins with, as it is written, we find that it's a conglomerate of cherry-picking of, of, of phrases and sentences glued together to make it say something that it never intended to say. And it begins with our uh, chapter, and Paul asserts, uh, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks uh, uh, for God. Now, I found you know a couple of interesting commentaries um, by some of the Christian study Bibles hmm. about Psalm 14. Um, uh, you know, we were just discussing verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. So, the MacArthur Study Bible says that in verses 2 and 3, where it speaks about the alls and the nuns, oh, yeah. um, of these lines make the indictments universally applicable. So, he understands that this psalm is talking about all human beings, and then he goes to say, no wonder... Paul included these indictments in Romans chapter 3. Um, now, he's uh, – John MacArthur is an avid uh, Calvinist, I do believe. And yeah, and he's, you know, a, a very, very highly respected, uh, you know, Christian scholar today. Hmm. Um, now, what I found interesting uh, – the most interesting comment I found was from the HCSB Study Bible – which says that Paul used these verses in a more absolute sense, meaning that uh, even though it's it's speaking about the fool specifically, he says in the commentary, or they say in the commentary, that Paul used this verse in a more absolute sense, that mm -hmm. no one among mankind is righteous, since all are corrupt. And he says Paul's usage is not contradictory to the original verse, which limited the, the chapter to the fool. But Paul, and here's the key word, Paul extends ah. its imagery. So he's acknowledging here that what Paul is doing is taking a psalm which is co contextually about the fool that denies God. And Paul extends its imagery to reflect the meaning that no person can claim righteousness, and here's the the you know the the, the thing that's totally non-defensible in terms of Psalm 14. Mm -hmm. He says no person can claim righteousness apart from that which is given through faith in Jesus. There it is. Now, right. <laughs> so basically, the, the the thesis here, and I think this is basically uh, a sentiment that's shared by you know, virtually all um, conservative Protestants mm. in the world today, um, which is that, you know, without faith in the Messiah, um, you know, a person cannot be 
seen as righteous by God, hmm. um, meaning that there's nothing that we can do that would have God see us in a positive way. All of our acts, everything that we do falls short. And, um, you know, the, the, we basically are totally corrupt. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the tea and tulip, um, totally depraved. And this, depravity. this is what I have in, uh, in my New King James study notes. It says under uh, no, not one, it says the biblical teaching on depravity is not that each individual is, an, is as evil as he or she could possibly be, but that sin is present in every individual in brackets Romans 3. Since no one is perfect, you know, we're not going so hard as, you know, total depravity, but since no one is perfect, all must ask God for his uh, forgiveness something he freely gives to those who place their trust in his son, Jesus. That's where they so go with it. That, by the way, I think there's some um, truth to that in the sense that no one is perfect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we see, for example, in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, where Solomon says that there isn't a righteous person on the earth mm -hmm. who only does good and never sins, mm -hmm. meaning that... And you see, by the way, this is um, in the book of Eov in Job, it says it twice, that there is no one born of a woman who is, you know, never sins. Meaning that because we're not God, we're not God, we are fallible. Hmm. Um, you know, even the, the greatest, greatest, greatest person in the world it can be greater. I mean, that even, uh, you know, if, if you were, if you were to, to speak to the greatest pianist on the planet, and ask them, you know, could you be better? See, of course I could be better. Mm. Um, so, no one is perfect. And it seems that that is, you know, because if you don't bring this into consideration, um, it seems impossible to understand how Paul and Christian theology can insist that there's no righteous people on the planet where the Bible speaks about righteous people, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of places. So, what they must be saying is, that there's no one righteous in the sense that they're perfect. And if you're not perfect, uh, I mean, if you, if, uh, you know, as many Christians say, if you break one commandment, you've broken them all. Mm. So uh, if you're not perfect, then you're not really righteous. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, their, their main mistake because um, it's very clear, both, you know, in terms of the scriptures and in terms of logic that God would not expect perfection of human beings. Um, God acknowledges um, that human beings are not perfect, and therefore even righteous people sin. Hmm. Even righteous people make mistakes. That's what Ecclesiastes 7.20 is saying. And you see that also in Proverbs, also by Solomon, where he thinks in chapter 24, verse 16, he speaks about the righteous person will fall down seven times, but will get up. So, he's not saying the righteous person never falls, never makes mistakes. He's saying that the righteous person will fall down, you know, many times, hmm. but they're going to get up. And actually, you know, uh, it's been suggested by Rabbi Huttner from Chaim Berlin, the famous head of that yeshiva. Um, he said that the psalm is not simply teaching us that the nature of a righteous person is such that when he or she 
falls, they will get up. It's saying much more than that. It's saying that what made this person righteous was the process of getting up after they fell mm. and learning and growing from those mistakes. Mm. Meaning it says seven times the righteous person will fall and get up. Meaning that's saying, and that's how they became righteous mm. through the process of learning and growing from the mistakes and then moving on. Yeah. And one of the major themes of the Bible is that God gives human beings this gift, the opportunity of repenting of our sins. Mm. You know, if God was not totally loving and kind and merciful, he would just kill everybody as soon as they made a mistake. You know, you, mm. you sin off with your head. Uh, <laughs> but God keeps on saying, you know, throughout the Bible, God says, I'm not interested in the death of the wicked. Mm. I'm interested that the wicked turn from their sins. Um, so, it's another major theme of the scriptures that Paul seems to ignore, that we are given the opportunity by God to repent, um, to grow and learn from our mistakes and to change. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that's the major mistake that's made here is that the, the, the assumption is that if you're not perfect, you can't be righteous. And the Bible seems to say very clearly that no, even righteous people sometimes sin. What makes them righteous is that they repent of their sins. Mm, that's right. So, it, but it is interesting, isn't it, that Paul does uh, go out of his way. I mean, this seems to be very deliberate. He goes out of his way to glue together. Uh, let's see, Psalm fourteen, verse one to three. Psalm five, verse nine. Psalm one hundred and forty, verse three. Psalm uh, verse chapter ten, verse seven. Uh, Isaiah fifty nine, verse seven, and Psalm thirty six, verse one. He takes. He takes a little from each of these and smushes them together, and then he just goes, as it is written, and relies on the ignorance of his readers. Is that fair? Well, I, I, I don't want to judge Paul. Um, <laughs> well, you know, look, um, if, if you wanted to be generous, which I'm very happy to be, um, you know, you could say that Paul has his uh, theology already in hand. Hmm. He's, not, he, he, he's not really, um, you know, claiming that this is what the Bible clearly and, and overtly teaches. He has his theology in hand. You know, we know, you know, Paul says something interesting in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. Mm -hmm. He said, if you could be righteous by following the Torah, then Jesus died in vain. So, he, he, he has a point of view, he has a perspective. You know, the perspective of Paul is that, and I believe that Paul, you know, a great deal of his theology is to explain away the death of the Messiah. Why did the Messiah have to die? And he has this entire thesis, this whole mm. construct of Jesus being uh, an atonement for sin. And, you know, he dies to atone for the sins of mankind, if you'll believe in him. Uh, then, of course, you know, the question comes up, well, who needs him to die for your sins? You could uh, atone for your own sins through repenting. Mm -hmm. So, Paul is sort of forced into saying, no, you can't, you, because you can never really be good enough. You can never really fully atone for your sins because you can't be perfect. So, he seems driven more by, you know, they say necessity is a mother of invention. He seems driven more by the need to, uh, you know, come up with a theology to explain, you know, why Jesus had to die rather than fulfill you know, what is clearly the biblical messianic program. Um, and I think once he has that vision of Jesus in his mind, 
he looks for passages in the Bible that don't prove it. You know, I don't think I'm not convinced that Paul really believed that these passages, you know, if you study them carefully, prove his theology. I think that he's finding, uh, you know, things that might hint at or be color his uh, agenda. Yeah, they they you know they are playful. You know, it's sort of these are playful hints that, you know, if you are, are sort of loosely understanding what these passages mean, they hint at and they, you know, they reflect um, in some way. If you're not terribly careful with what the passages actually mean, um, you know, they reflect you know, in some uh, loose manner his theology. Mm. Um, but I don't think he was necessarily trying to, you know, deceive the reader by taking advantage of their ignorance. I think it, it's possible. I mean, look, we know that the audience of Paul were not Jewish Torah scholars. Mm. They were, by and large, you know, Gentiles who were not terribly familiar with the, with the scriptures. You know, he could have gotten away with murder. Um, but I'm happy being generous and, you know, assuming that Paul was just looking for clues and hints what Christians sometimes call types and shadows, mm. you know, uh, I, I don't know if, if anyone that, that's playing that game is going to jump up and down and insist, you know, no, this is exactly what the scriptures mean. Um, you know, some people may. I think that what happens is, and I, I really believe this is uh, what has happened over Christian history, is mm. I think that um, these passages in the Christian Bible, I think, began um, – as playful, uh, I, I'll use the Hebrew word, you know, as what we call midrash in, in you know, Hebrew language. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when uh, Jewish people study the scriptures, there's a way of reading the Bible uh, where we read the sort of clear, simple, straightforward, literal meaning of a passage. Mm. You know, what does it mean clearly and simply and straightforward? And then you have what is referred to as the midrashic interpretation, which are you know, figurative, uh, allegorical, subjective, poetic, you know, uh, interpretations of what the text might be alluding to. So, is it fair to say, for example, that it's the difference between 1 plus 1 equals 2 and 1 and 1 equals 11? <laughs> you, could, you could say that. Okay. Um, as, long as, as long as you say 1 plus 1 is 11 and wink. You know, there's got to be a wink. Okay. So, I, I think that, that many, much of what I believe happens in the Christian Bible is that it was composed. I may be wrong here, but I think it was composed, and we see this all throughout the Gospels, you know, where it's very clear that when you read the, the text, as we did in our series on the 365 Messianic Prophecies, mm. you know, the, the way it's understood in the Christian scriptures has nothing to do with what it actually means in the Hebrew Bible, but I think you could say that, you know, the writers were interpreting or or massaging these texts from the Hebrew Bible in a quote-unquote midrashic way, meaning they were using them uh, figuratively, allegorically, poetically, hmm. and extending them to prove a point, or not to prove a point, but to substantiate in some way a point that they already believed in. But I think the problem is that once these interpretations, you know, became etched into the Christian Bible, I think that they, uh, over time, 
Christians began to understand these as the actual meaning of In these concrete passages. terms, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the problem. I think that today when, you know, Christians will write interpretations of the Bible and insist that, you know, that it, it really means this. No, really. You know, no wink at the end. It really no means wink. this. That's right. Um, they, they, they just – was. but happening is because they've been – this has become their map of reality, mm. that these these playful interpretations that I don't think were meant literally in the Christian scriptures became so much part of the Christian consciousness that that's how these verses now are understood. And, you know, now that, that becomes their simple reading of the text, which mm. I think is – you know, clearly, you know, a misreading of the text. Detrimental. Is there anything you wanted to highlight in regards to Psalm 14? I think we did a, you know, uh, an acceptable job. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> so it shall be written, so it shall be done. <laughs> As Pharaoh said in the Ten Commandments. That's right. Your brother. Thank you, my friend. Again, Rabbi Michael Skoback, the uh, of, of Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is JewsforJudaism.ca. JewsforJudaism.ca. So much more, so much more there. And uh, now you got some lectures coming up in uh, in Canada at the moment, don't you? For those in the area, we'll have something. Uh, I can't even remember all the dates, but something <laughs> put on. you on the spot. Yeah, I don't remember all the dates, but we have something, I think, a series of six lectures coming up uh, in April and May. We'll be discussing uh, gratitude and peace and uh, ecology from a Torah perspective. We'll be discussing um, whether the evil inclination is actually evil. We'll be discussing whether or not today we're really waiting for Messiah to come. Maybe some people would rather he never showed up. Uh, and we'll be discussing uh, the book, The Path of the Righteous by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. I think those are those six lectures and uh, a whole bunch of other things coming up, which I can't remember the dates of. <laughs> There's a whole lot of stuff. But they're on people. our website. Though. It's on the website. They'll be on our website. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Uh, again, a whole lot of other resources as well, but you'll get those dates. If you're in Canada or if you'd like to uh, make the trip, uh, Rabbi Michael Skoback will be giving those lectures. Jewsforjudaism.ca. You'll get all the details there. Thank you, my friend, for coming back on to Truth To You. Thanks so much, and look forward to seeing you again soon. You've been listening to Truth To You with me, John Ovandor. Join me on the coming Truth To You Israel tour. Details at our website, truthtoyou.org. That's truth, number two, letter U.org. Thank you for your company, and I hope you'll join us again. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.